Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. An investigation into the motives behind the shooting in Buffalo, New York, is raising the question, could it have been prevented? New details emerging about the California shoot shooting, more about the victim who's being called a hero, and about the shooting suspect. What's the motive? The 2022 primaries are underway in five states. Former President Trump's influence in the GOP will be tested. What are some of the top races? The shooting at a supermarket in Buffalo, New York on Saturday left 10 dead and three injured. Investigators are examining the motive of the attack and if any early warning signs were missed. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more. A mass shooting at the Topps Friendly Market in Buffalo took the lives of 10 people on Saturday. Now, investigators are trying to form a clear understanding into the motives of the massacre and if anything could have been done to prevent it. Among the victims killed were 62-year-old Geraldine Talley and 65-year-old grandmother Celestine Cheney. Authorities say the 18-year-old suspect, Peyton Gendron, was carrying out an act of racially motivated violent extremism. 11 of the 13 victims were black. Last June, police detained the teenager after a school shooting threat was made. Gendron talked about murder and suicide when a teacher asked about his plans after school ended. He was given a mental health evaluation and released after one and a half days. It is not clear if New York's red flag law could have been used, a law that bars people from owning guns if a judge determines they have a mental defect or have been forced into a mental institution. An evaluation alone does not trigger the prohibition. Authorities did not say when Gendron acquired the weapons used during the attack. Evidence suggests Gendron was conducting reconnaissance and demographic research in the area prior to the attack. He had to travel about 200 miles from his home in Conklin, New York. Information has also come as a result of some of this investigation that the individual was here a few months ago back in early March. Buffalo police say authorities are examining a 180-page manifesto posted online that appears to have been written by Gendron. Federal authorities are working to confirm the authenticity of the document. Investigators are searching through physical evidence, phone records, computers, and online postings. Officials say other threats have popped up on social media. The federal investigation is continuing. We're working again jointly with our state and local law enforcement partners regarding the threats that have been going around on the internet. Buffalo Mayor Byron Brown says authorities are staying on guard for copycats. Buffalo police and our partnering law enforcement agencies standing here are investigating these social media posts and will prosecute if necessary. Authorities suspect Gendron was planning to continue his attack, possibly at another store nearby. Gendron has pleaded not guilty to a murder charge and is under suicide watch in jail. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. President Joe Biden and First Lady Jill Biden are visiting Buffalo, New York today, meeting with community leaders, first responders, and the families of shooting victims. The victim of the California church shooting is being called a hero for charging the shooter. One official says he sacrificed himself so that others could live. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. 52-year-old Dr. John Chang tackled the shooter and attempted to disarm him, allowing others to intervene, according to officials. Dr. Chang is a hero in this incident. Dr. Chang was killed. Five others were injured. The shooting happened during a lunch held by the Taiwanese Presbyterian Church in a retirement community in Laguna Woods. Dr. Chang was one of the youngest members. Understanding that there was elderly everywhere 
and they couldn't get out of the premises because the doors had been chained. He took it upon himself to charge across the room and to do everything he could to disable the assailant. The shooting suspect is identified as 68-year-old David Cho of Las Vegas. Officials say he's a U.S. citizen who grew up in Taiwan. The sheriff says the motive for the shooting was Cho's hatred toward Taiwan, which was documented in handwritten notes. Uh, was a politically motivated hate incident, a grievance that this individual had between himself and the Taiwanese community. Cho's family apparently was among many forced to move from mainland China to Taiwan to flee the communist takeover. The sheriff said Cho was not well received in Taiwan. Cho's notes also suggest he believes Taiwan should be part of China, and he's part of a Las Vegas group that supports unification. It is believed the suspect involved was upset about political tensions between China and Taiwan. The AP reports that a former neighbor said Cho's life unraveled after his wife left him last year and moved to Taiwan. Taiwan's president Tsai Ing-wen condemned the shooting on social media and sent condolences saying violence is never the answer. Local Asian Americans in Orange County are shocked by the shooting. There's a lot of uh, Taiwanese uh, Asian people around in Irvine and Laguna Hill. We have uh, never, never heard hear anything happen like this. Hate is gonna causing other hate. And, uh, you know, they have to stop, have to stop. One young Filipino-American says his takeaway is you got to be a good citizen to other people. It's just very considerably shocking for something to happen to such a community, especially when violence is not really the norm. Keep being vigilant and just keep being compassionate to other people. All the victims were of Asian heritage. The FBI said it's opening a hate crime investigation. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Former President Donald Trump's influence in the Republican Party will be put to the test again today. Here's who to watch for as voters in five states cast their ballots in primary elections. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has the story. In Pennsylvania, the race for Republican Senate nominee pits celebrity Dr. Mehmet Oz, who was endorsed by former President Donald Trump, against David McCormick, a former hedge fund CEO. Kathy Barnett is also high on the list of frontrunners, trailing just behind Oz and McCormick. The conservative commentator has come on strong lately with a pro-life message. On the Democratic side, 52-year-old frontrunner John Fetterman suffered a minor stroke last week. The lieutenant governor is still hospitalized but says he is on his way to a full recovery. In the gubernatorial race, Democratic Governor Tom Wolf is unable to run again due to term limit laws. In a packed Republican field, leading the polls is Trump-endorsed state senator Doug Mastriano. In North Carolina, Trump pick Ted Budd is in a strong position to win the GOP Senate nomination. His main rivals are former U.S. Representative Mark Walker and former Governor Pat McCrory. McCrory is known for signing the so-called bathroom bill in 2016, which mandated gender-specific bathroom use in North Carolina government buildings. Sherry Beasley, the former Chief Justice of the state Supreme Court, is the frontrunner in the Democratic Senate primary. If she wins in November, she will become North Carolina's first black U.S. Senator. In Kentucky, two lawmakers are vying to replace retiring Congressman John Yarmuth, the state's only Democrat in Congress. The race is between state Senator Morgan McGarvey and state Representative Attica Scott. Several Republicans are also running for the seat, despite their underdog status.
In blue-leaning Oregon, the two leading Democrats in the gubernatorial primary are Tina Kotek, former Speaker of the State House, versus Tobias Reed, the state treasurer who has positioned himself as a moderate. While in Idaho, a heavy Republican state, the gubernatorial race will likely be settled by the GOP primary. Conservative Governor Brad Little is up against the Trump-backed candidate, Lieutenant Governor Janice McGeehan. In the race for Idaho Attorney General, five-term incumbent Lawrence Walden is facing a tough primary challenge from former U.S. Representative Raul Labrador. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Commissioners in Pennsylvania's Lancaster County voted to remove the county's lone ballot drop box the day before the primary election, but there is heated debate over the decision. Instead of placing absentee ballots in the drop box located just three steps inside the door of the county building, voters will have to walk about 30 steps into the building to get to the Board of Elections office. There, they will hand their ballot directly to one of the workers. Around the nation, the use of unmanned drop boxes has met with scrutiny amid evidence of suspected fraud. An investigation by Pennsylvania's Lehigh County found hundreds of people putting multiple ballots into unmanned drop boxes. An organizer with the advocacy group Lancaster Stands Up sent a group email to rally Democrats' support. He said that by removing the drop box, commissioners are making it confusing and difficult for voters to cast a ballot so close to an election. 77 undisclosed royalty payments. That's how many two key researchers at the National Institutes of Health, or NIH, received from outside firms. The researchers are executives who hold or held positions of influence on who gets grants from the agency. And those payments are among thousands that totaled $350 million between 2010 and 2020. Dr. Michael Gottesman is the deputy director of the NIH. He got 70 secret royalty payments between 2010 and 2014. Roger Glass is the agency's associate director for international research. He got seven royalty payments. That's according to information obtained through a Freedom of Information Act or FOIA request by government watchdog Open the Books. The NIH ignored the FOIA request at first, but then the watchdog filed a lawsuit in federal court. Then the NIH started to release the information. The Epoch Times first reported on the $350 million worth of secret payments. The former director of the NIH, Dr. Francis Collins, received 14 payments, Dr. Fauci got 23, and Clifford Lane, who is Fauci's chief deputy, got eight. Acting NIH Director Lawrence Tabak conceded to a House panel that the payments have the appearance of a conflict of interest. Federal law and ethics regulations prevent federal employees from doing things that present even the appearance of a conflict of interest. But Tabak insisted that there are safeguards in place to prevent any problems. But who gave Gottesman the 70 royalty payments? That detail is unclear because the NIH blacked out the information in the documents. The amount and purpose of the payments is also unknown. Several Republican lawmakers have condemned the news of the secret royalty payments. Senator Marsha Blackburn called the NIH a dark money pit. And Senator Ted Cruz said, This report is disturbing, and if it is true that some of our country's top scientists have conflict of interest problems, the American people deserve to have all the answers. And Representative Greg Stubbe has called for an investigation. He says it is certainly a conflict of interest for scientists like Dr. Fauci to take in millions from third parties who benefit from taxpayer-funded grants. According to the NIH, even Fauci said he felt receiving the payment was inappropriate and donated the entire amount to charity. The trial for Hillary Clinton's former campaign lawyer started Monday. Michael Sussman is charged with lying to the FBI. He's accused of lying about his clients while passing on a tip alleging suspicious ties between former President Donald Trump and Russia. 
but the trial is shaping up to be about something much bigger. According to court documents, the FBI investigation found Sussman's actions may have been part of a smear campaign to spur an investigation into Trump and his political campaign. The former president has claimed the FBI probe into his 2016 campaign was the, quote, crime of the century and pointed the finger at Clinton and other government officials. The jury was seated and sworn in Monday. Texas authorities on Monday issued a new plea for information to find a convicted murderer who escaped from a transport bus and stabbed that vehicle's driver. Robert Hurst from the Texas Department of Criminal Justice said in a news conference in Centerville that more than 300 police officers were on the ground looking for Gonzalo Lopez. Lopez had escaped custody on Thursday in Leon County, a rural area between Dallas and Houston. Officials said that 16 prisoners were aboard the bus from which Lopez fled, but no one else escaped. The bus driver's injuries weren't considered life-threatening. Hearst said that a $50,000 reward is being offered for information leading to Lopez's capture. Lopez was convicted in 2006 of killing a man on the Texas-Mexico border. U.S. authorities on Monday announced the discovery of an underground smuggling tunnel on Mexico's border running the length of a football field on U.S. soil to a warehouse in an industrial area. Investigators discovered the tunnel last week about half a mile from the Otay Mesa border crossing between Tijuana and San Diego in an area where more than a dozen others have been discovered in the past two decades. After staking out a home that had recently been used as a drug stash house, agents began making traffic stops of vehicles that had been there or at a warehouse near the border, turning up boxes full of cocaine. They raided the properties, finding no other drugs at the warehouse, but a tunnel opening carved into the cement floor. Like many such tunnels, it had reinforced walls, electricity, ventilation, and a rail system. It ran one-third of a mile to Tijuana. It was four feet in diameter and about six stories deep. Agents seized more than 1,700 pounds of cocaine, 165 pounds of meth, and 30.5 pounds of heroin from the vehicles and the residents, and they arrested six people on federal drug conspiracy charges. Coming up, Ukraine has ceded control of the port city Mariupol to Russia. Ukraine's president says he wants to save Ukrainian lives. And views in Russia are mixed about Sweden and Finland's decision to join the NATO military alliance. Some believe that it should have been dissolved long ago when the Soviet Union collapsed. Others fear it may cause a rift in relations between Russia and its Nordic neighbors. Stay tuned for more in just a moment. Ukraine's military ceded control of the strategic port city of Mariupol to Russia today. It announced it was working to evacuate all remaining troops from their last stronghold in the Azovstal steel plant. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky stressed the importance of saving lives in his address. We hope we'll be able to save the lives of our guys. There are severely wounded ones among them. They're being given care. I want to stress that Ukraine needs Ukrainian heroes alive. That's our principle. Reuters saw at least five buses arrive in the Russian-controlled city of Novoazovsk to the east of Mariupol late on Monday. The buses were seen marked with the Russian pro-war symbol Z. They arrived with heavily wounded Ukrainian troops from Azovstal. 
Ukraine's military said in a statement it had ordered its commanders at the steelworks to save the lives of the defenders, saying, quote, the Mariupol garrison has fulfilled its combat mission. Fifty-three heavily wounded defenders were sent to Novoazovsk, while some 200 others were taken to another town north of Mariupol, said Ukraine's deputy defense minister, Anna Malya. She confirmed the evacuations were part of a potential prisoner exchange with Moscow. The evacuations likely mark the end of the longest and bloodiest battle of Russia's war in Ukraine and a significant defeat for Ukraine. Mariupol is now in ruins after a Russian siege that Ukraine says killed tens of thousands of people in the city. Since Russia launched what it calls a special military operation in February, the port city's devastation has become a symbol both of Ukraine's resistance and of Russia's willingness to devastate Ukrainian cities that hold out. The Senate voted to advance a $40 billion military aid package to Ukraine. This is despite objections from Senator Rand Paul and his request for oversight on how the money is spent. The vote included solid support from both parties. The bill will now await a final vote in the Senate, which may come as early as May 18th. In comments on the Senate floor, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer decried Paul's effort last week to block the legislation. Paul said, we cannot save Ukraine by dooming the U.S. economy. He noted how much gas, energy, and food prices have all risen. Paul was successful in temporarily halting the bill, but Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell promised Ukrainian leaders during a weekend visit to Kyiv that the bill would still pass. After a period of stalling, the $40 billion taxpayer-funded bill is expected to head to Biden's desk by the end of the week. The U.S. Air Force scores a win over the weekend with a successful test of its hypersonic missile. This comes one month after officials confirmed the program had numerous delays because of flight test anomalies. According to the Air Force, the air-launched rapid response weapon was released from a B-52H bomber Saturday and reached hypersonic speeds. The ARRW uses a booster rocket to hit speeds higher than five times the speed of sound, and a glide vehicle separates from the booster and rapidly heads toward its target. Pentagon officials placed high focus on hypersonic weapons after some lawmakers expressed concern that China's and Russia's programs were showing success in this area. President Vladimir Putin appears to have changed his position over Russia's objections to Sweden and Finland joining NATO. He said Moscow had no issues with them entering the U.S.-led military alliance. I want to inform you, dear colleagues, that Russia has no problem with those states. It hasn't. So in this regard, expansion by the addition of those countries poses no direct threat for us. But the expansion of military infrastructure into this territory would certainly provoke our response. What that will be, we will see what threats are created for us. The comments appear to mark a major shift in rhetoric. Moscow for decades has cast NATO expansion as a direct threat to Russia's security, including citing it as a justification for the invasion of Ukraine itself. Russia's invasion has shaken up Europe's security architecture and forced Sweden and Finland to choose sides after staying out of NATO during the Cold War. Finland and Sweden now say they want the protection offered by NATO's treaty, under which an attack on any member is considered an attack on all. Swedish Prime Minister Magdalena Andersson made the announcement Monday. Our 200-year-long standing policy of military non-alignment has served Sweden well. But the issue at hand is whether military non-alignment will keep serving as well. 
And Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine is uh, not only illegal and indefensible, it also undermines the European security order that Sweden builds its security on. Swedish and Finnish officials have said Putin has only himself to blame for their decisions to join NATO. But the plans might be hitting a snag. NATO member Turkey said it would not approve either bid, with Turkish President Tayyip Erdogan saying Monday that Sweden and Finland should not bother sending delegations to Ankara to persuade Turkey. Sweden and Finland need each of NATO's 30 members to approve their applications. St. Petersburg and Moscow residents are expressing some concerns about Finland and Sweden joining NATO. We hear what Russians think of the plans. Russia said Monday that the West should have no illusions that Moscow would simply put up with the Nordic expansion of NATO to include Sweden and Finland. It suggests the move is likely to stoke military tension. St. Petersburg residents showed some regrets about the ending of close relations between Russia and Finland. In fact, I'm dead set about it. Finland was a kind and friendly country for the Russian Federation because it was upholding neutral status. And by joining NATO, it becomes a strategic opponent for Russia. And I see nothing good in this situation. Russian President Vladimir Putin has repeatedly cited enlargement of the NATO alliance eastwards towards Russia's borders as a reason for the invasion of Ukraine. But the conflict has created one of the biggest changes to Europe's security architecture for decades. It was once unthinkable that Sweden and neighbor Finland would join the military alliance. Moscow has repeatedly warned of serious consequences if Finland and Sweden join NATO. Finland shares an 810-mile border with Russia. The Kola Peninsula in Arctic Northwest Russia lies east from the borders of Finland and Norway. It's an area that Moscow considers key for its national security. Russia's second biggest city, St. Petersburg, lies just over 100 miles from the border of Finland. Moscow residents gave a mixed response when asked about the plans by Finland and Sweden to join NATO. Russia should chill out, you know. Chill out and let countries do what they want. And nobody tells Russia what to do. It's the international right of every state to join whomever they want. NATO was founded in 1949 to provide European security against the Soviet Union. Some feel that NATO should have been dissolved when the Soviet Union fell. I don't know what we should do, to be honest. I'm being cautious about everything, you might say. They are surrounding us on all sides. Swedish and Finnish NATO membership would be one of the biggest strategic consequences of Russia's invasion of Ukraine to date. Still to come, the U.S. Secretary of State expressed his support for the family of the slain Palestinian journalist. We hear some analysis on the consequences of the violence that erupted at her funeral. And a heavy sandstorm is paralyzing Iraq. Schools, businesses and airports are all affected. It's part of an unprecedented number of sandstorms to hit the country in recent weeks. More on that in just a minute here on NTD News. The brother of the slain Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akla spoke about the chaos seen on video at the funeral for his sister. He accuses Israeli police of a brutal attack. The police, uh, we saw on the videos, 
how they acted brutally against pole bearers carrying the, the casket with the batons, uh, beating them, uh, smashing the, the hearse. This was unacceptable, unjustifiable. The Israeli Minister of Public Security told CNN that police acted to allow the funeral procession to proceed smoothly along with an understanding of how sensitive and complex the event was. He said that participants at the funeral caused severe violent events to break out that made the situation worse. In widely seen footage, police are seen clashing with a group carrying the casket, but police say the casket was not supposed to be transported by hand and was supposed to be loaded into a hearse. According to a Times of Israel report, police say the casket was marched by hand at the hospital against the family's wishes. Palestinian and Israeli authorities are separately investigating the journalist's death. The U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has expressed his support for the family of the slain journalist Abu Akla. He has also called for a credible investigation into her death. I wanted to learn more about the events surrounding her funeral, so I spoke with a veteran journalist of two decades who covers the Middle East. He mentions that even before an investigation is carried out into the Israeli police's actions, their public image could be at risk. He calls it a Khashoggi moment, referring to public opinion toward the Saudis following the assassination of the Saudi Arabian journalist. Joining us now is Michael Friedson, who is the co-founder and executive editor of the Media Line News Agency. Thank you for joining us, Michael. Pleasure to be here. The police have intervened in the funeral for a journalist Abu Akla. The newspaper Haaretz Daily cited unnamed police sources, saying that police were ordered to take down any flags, in this case, Palestinian flags. Is this order justified, and is there any reason for a confrontation over this? Well, I can't speak to the justification. If it's a police order and it was truly the order um, actually existed, that's totally a matter for the parties involved in them themselves. It's not unusual that the police, over a number of years, have wanted uh, overt things that appear to be provocative to one side, presumably their own side, they want them down. Flags have always been a, a flag, you know, just like waving a red flag for a bull. A Palestinian flag has been seen by the Israelis to uh, instigate and, and encourage more violence. Whether that's true, I can't speak to, but uh, that's a part of the modus operandus of the uh, Israeli police, so that they would make that order is really not that unusual and it's not really that suspect. If, if the source was a good source, probably it happened. And Israeli police said Palestinians threw rocks at them and so they were forced to act. Do you suspect that this violence is going to change their policing approach? Well, they know going into it that that's going to be what's going to happen. You know, the police uh, have countered the, these kinds of demonstrations time and time again over a very long period of time. They know that there will be at some point uh, rocks thrown. They know at some point uh, uh, things will be lit and thrown at the police. The fireworks will be thrown. There's a whole series of things that are almost choreographed for these kind of demonstrations, and both sides know exactly what's going to be. So whether or not they're going to change their approach uh, that's where this, the severity of this particular instance is coming into play, because the downside for the Israelis is that they could be stumbling into what I've been calling a Khashoggi moment. 
And uh, that is a PR nightmare, and that is beyond what the norm is, and the Israelis would want to do anything they can to prevent that. So yes, uh, they will modify their standard operations to make sure that uh, this stays, it comes back under control. And Michael, there's presumptive outrage over what the police are purported to have done, and Israel says it is investigating. What do you make of the optics surrounding this situation? Well, for Israel, it's terrible. For the Palestinians, it's not great either. Uh, don't forget that the Palestinian victim's family uh, was encouraging, not was discouraging, uh, making a, a, a political scene out of the funeral. That request really was not honored, apparently. And um, what will be the repercussions internally remains to be seen. But um, it, it is clear that both sides have not gone forward to create the situation where there's a transparent investigation. The big questions, the key questions, like surrounding the trajectory, surrounding the bullets, surrounding the information that could actually settle this uh, absolutely is not being taken by either side for different reasons. So um, unless the uh, parties, both the Palestinians and the Israelis, go to a place where they can share and, and have an, a, a transparent uh, investigation that both sides are satisfied with, it will be an, uh, it will maintain the optics and the appearance of being um, of either side not wanting to actually have that answer and to prefer the ability to be able to rant, rave, demonstrate, and carry on, which, of course, is not helping anybody. Michael Friedson, co-founder of the Media Line News Agency, thank you for your analysis. Pleasure. Next, we hear from a researcher at the Israeli Institute for Regional Foreign Policies. She knew the slain journalist, Shireen Abu Akla, and tells us about Abu Akla's life as a journalist. Please welcome Ksenia Svetlova, who is an Israeli politician and researcher. Thank you for joining us, Ksenia. Thank you. Thank you for having me. What can you tell us about the fallen Al Jazeera reporter, Shireen Abu Akla? Uh, well, you know, she was definitely a Palestinian uh, symbol. Uh, she was one of the most famous reporters all over the Arab world, not only in the Palestinian Authority, of course. Um, I uh, knew her. I mean, I met her in a few occasions because I also used to be a reporter covering the Palestinian territories uh, back in the 2000s for roughly almost 15 years. So I met her in a, a lot of occasions. Uh, she was also always very cool, very professional. Uh, I did not always agree, you know, with the content of what she had to say. Uh, but, you know, uh, we discussed it with another colleague of hers in Al Jazeera and uh, very early on in, during the 2000s. And uh, we just, you know, reached the conclusion that, well, everybody is a product of his or her society. Uh, and is, uh, it is important for us to stay as professional as journalists. But still, you know, there is, of course, some bias. Uh, and I can only say that uh, although, of course, you know, there was a bias. Of course, in her reporting, you know, she was a Palestinian, and of course, she was reporting from the Palestinian point of view. But I can tell you that also she was a professional journalist, not afraid uh, to get in the most uh, difficult situations, trying to best as good coverage, as best coverage, immediate coverage of the news as possible to her audience. And I really admired her for this. 
And do you think that Abu Akhla's death and the violence at her funeral is going to change anything in terms of the relations between Palestine and Israel? Well, although, you know, it's definitely, it's, it's a tragedy. Uh, her death is, tra it's, it's a tragedy, you know. She covered the conflict all her life, and then she became a victim of this conflict, you know. So there is not many things, you know, that tragic than, than this. Uh, and, of course, you know, there was this uh, horrific violence uh, during the, uh, her funeral. Uh, but I have to tell you that uh, it's not an um, isolated event. Uh, we have many deaths. We have many violence. They are living violence day, day by day. Uh, those who are living in this area, Israelis and Palestinians. Uh, right now, we are in the midst of uh, uh, a new wave of terror and violence. Uh, and uh, so I think the Palestinians, they also, they will tell you that also they feel, you know, they feel the heat. Uh, people are dying. Uh, and I can tell you that this situation is going from bad to worse. But I would not say that this is a defining moment, unfortunately, you know, because there was so many tragedies and deaths, you know, so uh, that presided to that. Ksenia Svetlova, Israeli politician and researcher, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. A heavy sandstorm in Iraq has closed some state schools and offices and halted flights at Baghdad International Airport. Iraqis say there have been an unprecedented number of sandstorms that hit the country in recent weeks. An orange haze clouded the streets of Baghdad on Monday, the result of a sandstorm that shut down schools and offices. Visibility in the capital and southern Iraqi cities was down to just a few hundred feet, the byproduct of what residents say is an unprecedented number of sandstorms in recent weeks. Rows of seats and luggage belts were empty in the Najaf airport. In the capital, the airport said it was closing its airspace and halting flights due to low visibility. Authorities in Baghdad, including the education ministry, declared a day off for local government institutions, with the exception of health services. Hundreds of people across the capital and southern cities went to hospitals with breathing difficulties, medical officials said. Isan Maloud is an accident and emergency doctor. We have been in a state of complete readiness this past month. We've received patients with suffocation from the sandstorms. Admission is open for everyone, and whoever comes is admitted to hospital and receives the treatment needed until they have recovered and can be released to go home. All the means are available, machines and oxygen. Recently, Iraq has been having at least one sandstorm a week. Video shows the moment a Colombian robbery victim runs over armed muggers riding a motorbike. The incident took place on a busy road in Colombia's capital. The video shows the thieves point a gun at 28-year-old Colombian criminal lawyer Angelo Schiavenato. He accelerates and knocks the two men down with their motorbike. The lawyer says the two armed men pointed a gun at his head and asked him to hand over his belongings while he was out driving his convertible. His convertible top was down and the men threatened him while stopped at traffic lights. The thieves took his luxury watch worth $10,000, a cell phone, and a necklace. The lawyer's assistant also gave the men her necklace and cell phone. The robbers then threatened the pair and fired shots, but the lawyer accelerated and drove into them. The thieves fell to the ground and tried to get away, but Colombian police officers arrested them. The two men will be prosecuted for the crime of aggravated theft and illegally carrying firearms. 
Just ahead, the UK is rapidly catching up with France in cheesemaking. Many new young cheesemakers are starting in the trade in the UK, which has already far surpassed France in the number of cheese varieties. But will the taste live up to the promise? And forest scientists call on Western Australia's environment minister to reconsider plans to set fire to an ancient tingle forest on the state's south coast. We'll have more for you after this short break. The UK's Postal Service wants to start delivering mail by drone to isolated communities. The Royal Mail plans to create 50 new routes that would take letters and parcels to remote islands, bringing a new meaning to the term airmail. Here's more on the story. The UK's Postal Delivery Service, the Royal Mail, plans to introduce 50 postal drone routes to some of the nation's most remote communities. The planes are able to fly autonomously. They don't need to carry a pilot on board. Uh, one of the benefits of that is they burn less fuel than a conventional aircraft. They connect up with our postmen and postwomen um, who will be able to uh, deliver the items. The company expects to use up to 200 uncrewed aerial vehicles over the next three years. The first routes will be to places like the Hebrides, Shetland Islands and Orkney Islands in Scotland, as well as the Isles of Scilly off the south coast of England. Locals welcome the development. It could take up to a week or more even sometimes to get deliveries. Um, the drone has the potential to speed things up tremendously, and that can only be better for the Isles of Scilly. The project is a partnership with the logistics drone company Windracers. Royal Mail has already carried out over four trials over the last 18 months. The UAVs can carry up to 220 pounds of mail for two daily return flights between islands. The project now needs to be approved by the UK's Civil Aviation Authority before it can get off the ground. Delicious cheese varieties are usually associated with France. However, Britain has been rapidly catching up with its neighbor as a number of young people are taking an interest in cheesemaking. Artisan cheese varieties now exceed those of France in number. Here are the details. Um, which Stilton would you like? A surprisingly large number of artisan cheese brands can now be found in Britain. This cheese shop in Melton Mowbray, Leicestershire, has one of the widest range of cheeses in England. Shop owner John Brown produces eight different types of cheese, and for him, variety and diversity are key. Make a, a camembert that's been made the same way for donkey's years. We are making something different. We can't compete on price but we certainly can compete on quality. An estimated 1,600 artisan cheese brands are on offer in Britain, twice that of France, according to ITV. Online cheesemonger CheeseGeek says that UK producers make around 1,000 varieties. Blue Stilton is one of the most popular varieties, but is the French diaspora convinced? Johan Mainen has been running a deli in Islington, London for the past six years. Always fight, you know, between France and England, like in rugby, so why not? But for cheese, I think French cheese is, um, is still the, the best. <laughs> With that many varieties and healthy competition, it's game on for the cheesemakers. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. Forest scientists are calling on Western Australia's environment minister, asking him to reconsider plans for a prescribed burn. The burn would set fire to an ancient tingle forest on the state's south coast. 
The Parks and Wildlife Service says it's necessary to protect nearby communities from wildfires, but some disagree. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. These giant red tingles are among the world's tallest and oldest trees. They're unique to a small area in Western Australia. And they're very limited. There's only, say, 6,000 hectares of this kind of red tingle forest in our conservation estate. This nearly 1,000-acre block of Kari and Tingle Forest is scheduled to be burnt by the Parks and Wildlife Service to reduce the risk of wildfires threatening Walpole. But a recent prescribed burn done by Parks and Wildlife in another Tingle block sparked outrage on social media. The fire destroyed Tingle trees estimated to be hundreds of years old. Professor Stephen Hopper was once director of London's Royal Botanic Kew Gardens. He believes prescribed burning of forests should be limited to areas close to towns. We would urge, you know, ease, ease off the, the pedal, off the accelerator in the heart of national parks and allow these places to, to grow for, you know, 100 years. On the other hand, Nordalip local David Guthrier said he's worried that if a wildfire were to spark without any controlled burning, it could be catastrophic. The minister should look seriously at, at um, more funds, but direct those funds towards achieving cooler burning, a burning that is similar to what happened before white settlement. While the debate about burning this block continues in the community, the department has made a decision not to burn this fall. Instead, it's postponed until December 2022. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Coming up, a passion play returns to audiences again after a two-year delay due to the pandemic. We look at the play's themes and their relevance today. And the Cannes Film Festival returns for its 75th anniversary after the event was cancelled in 2020 and scaled back in 2021 due to the pandemic. Find out more right here on NTD News. A passion play is about to open to audiences in Bavaria again after a two-year delay. The world-famous German performance tells the story of the last five days before Christ's crucifixion. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. Almost 400 years ago, a small Bavarian village was in the midst of a deadly epidemic. The Catholic residents of Oberammergau vowed to perform a play of the suffering, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ every 10 years. If only God would spare them any further losses from the plague, known as the Black Death. But after centuries of keeping that promise, the pandemic hit. During the last two years, there have been no concerts in Oberammergau, no theater, no cultural life, no traditional festivals, for example. Everything was canceled. Now, after a two-year delay, the famous Oberammergau Passion Play is back. This is exactly what we are catching up on. The coming together, standing together on the stage, playing music together, working towards something. This is something that does us a lot of good. Director Christian Stuckel was born in Oberammergau and has been in charge of the play for more than 30 years. He says the story of Jesus' passion has remained relevant through the ages. This story has always to tell something. We should focus on what Jesus wants and not what the church wants. With Russia's invasion of Ukraine still underway, Themes like war, hunger, persecution, and displacement play prominent roles in this year's production, showing the timelessness of human suffering, both from 2,000 years ago and from today. The play opens on May 14th. Andrew Thomas, NTD News.
The Cannes Film Festival is set to return in a big way for its 75th anniversary. The world-renowned event was canceled in 2020 and scaled back in 2021 due to the pandemic. The Cannes Film Festival is rolling out the red carpet Tuesday, and this year's roster of films is sure to impress. I honestly think this is one of the best can lineups in years. I mean, you've got uh, a couple of really big Hollywood movies, uh, uh, Top Gun Maverick, which has been waiting two years to hit theaters because it was delayed because of COVID, held back. It's finally going to come out and be shown here on the red carpet. You've got Elvis, a Baz Luhrmann film about the king of rock and roll, so promises to be a huge sort of spectacular. And it's expected to be a star-studded event. This year, it seems to be that everyone who has a film here, all the stars, have confirmed their flights. Nobody wants to stay away. Everyone wants to sort of come back for this, uh, this moment, sort of this, I don't know, reawakening of cinema uh, here, here in Cannes. So I think it's going to be an amazing red carpet. If this year's Cannes is a huge success, it could bode well for the future of the movie industry. After the pandemic kept audiences from enjoying films at theaters. When I've been talking to independent producers, independent uh, financers, um, uh, cinema owners um, in different countries, um, they say they're really excited. They think people will come back to theaters. They think um, the sort of um, streaming boom doesn't mean that uh, cinema is dead. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot of business uh, being done here. And hopefully in the coming months, um, a lot of sort of box office successes uh, that started here in Cannes. This year's festival will take place amid the war in Ukraine. The event's organizers have banned Russians with ties to the government from attending. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Let's turn our attention to health and wellness now. Our attachments can create difficulties for us until we let them go. Here's Gina Marie who brings us Strong Mind and Body. A surprising number of our daily struggles stem from our attachments such as overeating or procrastination. More often than not, the challenge we're dealing with is something we're actively enforcing. That also means it's something we can let go of. Let's start with a few common attachments starting with overeating. If we eat purely for comfort or don't know when to stop, it can lead to feeling bad or declining health. The attachment to tasting certain foods every day or constantly overfilling our plate can fuel overeating. Next is overworking. If we are working too much, there might be an attachment at play. It could be to getting as much done as possible or maybe to feel like we're good enough. Or maybe the attachment is to showing others how good we are. Putting things off. Procrastination can have any number of causes. Some possibilities include an attachment to perfection. Another is getting a particular outcome that makes us feel safe or good about ourselves. Or maybe it's an attachment to control and we delay doing things we are uncertain about. Frustrations with other people. The attachment here might be to having people behave the way we want them to, or have them be happy with us. We may be attached to expectations about how they should be. Addictions to social media. The attachment might be to a feeling of comfort, or maybe a feeling of being entertained. We may also be attached to the endless novelty of new content and the possibility of something new and surprising. Clutter. If we have too much clutter, we might have attachments to the comforts and security of shopping and receiving packages in the mail. Or it could be to an attachment to possessions for emotional reasons. 
Our attachments are part of us and sometimes we can't even distinguish between our true selves and the things we're attached to. So that raises the question, can we let go of our attachments? The answer is absolutely. Becoming conscious is the first step. The second step is to acknowledge that it's not serving you or others. The third step is to utilize that wonderful strong will that God gave you to release it. The more you let go of, the lighter you'll become. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email address on screen. We'd love to hear from you. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.